uh, the Minor Prophets. Um, on January 21st, 1930, that's so long ago, I don't even remember it really well. I was really young at the time. But uh, uh, King George V in England addressed the world uh, following a really big international uh, naval disarming treaty that was going on. This was between world wars. There was all these treaties going on. And he made a radio uh, speech to the world. And it was really important that the whole world hear this. And so um, overseas here in America, uh, his uh, speech was going to be broadcast. And in the room of the Columbia Broadcasting Company, uh, one of the uh, people in the control room tripped over a cable and cut the signal that was going out to more than 59 radio stations in America with his speech. Um, now, I actually looked this story up, and it is in the New York Times. It is a true story. Um, these wires were broken, and a young uh, audio engineer tech in the room named Harold Vivian grabbed each end of the broken wires, and he used his body as a human circuit to complete the circuit for that signal and for the next 20 minutes with his arms convulsing with electricity held those two wires while the broadcast of the king went through him to the nation and uh, and it was actually through his body that until they were able to plug in new wires that the message was transmitted pretty amazing story um, that, that that he did there and in the old testament god would speak to people through his prophets but uh, today we're going to talk about someone that God spoke through. He spoke his message through him, but not just through words and speech or things he wrote down, but through his life in a really wild way, a really crazy way. And uh, that guy's name was Hosea. And so we're going to be in the prophet, the book of the prophet Hosea today. Um, I'm going to talk a little timelines with you here, because sometimes when we read Old Testament, the Old Testament is not in our Bibles in chronologi chronological order. It's, it's put together in the order of like types of books they are. You've got the books of the law, you've got the books of history, you've got the, uh, the books of poetry and wisdom, you've got the minor prophets and major prophets. So chronologically, it kind of is a skew in some ways. So if you look here, this is kind of a, a, a basic breakdown of what Israel looked like after they got to the promised land. If you look here on the left side, this is the kings of the United Kingdom here in the upper left. If you go to the next one, Sandy, not the United Kingdom like of England. I'm talking about the United Kingdom uh, being uh, Israel and Judah combined. That was just three kings long, Saul, David, and Saul, his son Solomon, his son Solomon. Now after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. There was a southern kingdom, which were the kings of Judah, which we have up there. And then there was a northern kingdom down below, which were the kings of Israel. Now you'll see there at 720 BC was the fall of Israel, uh, sorry, of Judah down below. Um, I got those switched up. Sorry. Kings of Israel, of the north up top, and then I, I get, you got ahead of me one there, Sandy. Go back there, for one for me. Then the kings of Judah in the south down below. So um, Israel fell in 720 BC. That's when Assyria attacked, took them into captivity, and they never returned. They are the, the lost tribes of Israel. Um, down below, you'll see that Judah went on for a while. They were paying uh, tribute to Assyria for a while, but eventually in 585 BC, they fell to Babylon. And then there was a remnant that returned when Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah and those things. So um, that kind of gives you an idea. And down below, you'll see, are the prophets that we've been talking through. So I started our series with Jonah. Now you can go to the next one. Uh, Jonah uh, preached uh, right around right around 700. And he preached right up uh, till about 750. And then um, 
The week after I preached that three-week series on Jonah, Pastor Todd preached on Zechariah and Haggai. Um, and they were uh, the prophets uh, d- down the line after, you can go to the next one, Sandy, after the uh, remnant returned, they are the ones who uh, prophesied while they were rebuilding the temple and things of that nature. And then, of course, last week we had uh, Dr. Uh, what's that? Debbie, who was with us, and she preached on Habakkuk. And so he was right in the middle, and he preached to the southern kingdom right before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's where we've been, but today we are in Hosea. So we're going back in time to right after Jonah was done prophesying, Hosea prophesied. You can go to the next one, Sandy. And Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah and Micah. He prophesied it right around the same time. And you can see there, he prophesied right up until the fall of Israel to Assyria, if you follow that timeline up. And so he saw this coming. And, uh, and, and while uh, Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom, which would go on for a while. Could you go back for me, Sandy? While Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom, there we go, um, uh, and, and he, he got to see really cool things. He got to see, like, God and his temple. In a, he had a vision of seeing God and his temple and, in, like, in his power and all these things. Uh, Hosea didn't get the, the long end of the stick, as it were. He got to marry a prostitute and uh, have, him, have her leave him, uh, which uh, that's kind of a, a tough go. So this, but this event kind of sets the tone for Hosea's ministry. So he prophesied to the northern kingdom while Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom. And uh, Hosea's life would actually end up becoming a living metaphor. Remember I said that he did more than just present God's message through words and speech and writing it down. His very life became a living metaphor to the people. It was a, a, a unique, challenging situation. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me. We're going to go right to the book of Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is going to be towards the second half of your Bible, probably about three quarters of the way through your Bibles. So Hosea chapter 1 verse 2 says this. This is in the NIV. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman, or a prostitute, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So, what's that God? (laughs) Like, are there no high-quality women in Israel at the time? Is this like the best option you've got for me? Uh, Prostitution may be the oldest profession, but it's not exactly the most honorable profession. And... uh, uh, he, I'm sure that Hosea is going, couldn't you just send me online to like plenty of Christian fish farmers only.com? <laughs> There's got to be someone out there. I can meet a great single gal. But uh, God says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to have you marry this promiscuous woman. And to add insult to injury, her name is Gomer. <laughs> uh, I don't know if she was from Mayberry or what. That's... Uh, that's the only Andy Griffith joke you'll get in the whole message, I promise. So I, I, and I've only seen like a half an episode of Andy Griffith. I know there's a lot of whistling in it. That's what I'm a, I remember. But, uh, but Gomer is this woman that he's supposed to, to marry. And, and you better bet than when, that when God told Hosea, you are going to marry this woman named Gomer, that word spread quickly. Uh, I would imagine that uh, everyone in town knows who Gomer is. Um, and this holy man of God, this prophet of God, is going to marry a floozy? This prophet, this righteous man, 
with this woman of ill repute. And uh, this was all something to illustrate God choosing Israel. God in his holiness, God in his righteousness, still choosing Israel. He says, in the same way I've taken you, Israel, who is uh, of ill repute in many, so many ways, I am a righteous God, but I have chosen you. And so this is what God tells Hosea to do. So in verse 3 it says, so Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Deblame. So who's to blame? He's to, to blame. <laughs> and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. So verses 3 through 9 go, go on. Um, to talk about how Hosea and Gomer are married and they start to have children and, and they start naming babies. Now, um, many of us parents, when we have babies, we go through the baby books or for us it was online, going online and looking at hundreds and hundreds of baby names and, and it starts to just become a, a blur after a while. You're like, so many names. And um, something Hosanna and I did for each other was we gave each other veto power. Uh, that way, no matter how much someone else might like a certain baby name, the other one can say, Nay, nay. Um, which I guess for Hosanna worked out well because when she was like seven months pregnant with Gavin, I was at a youth conference and there was a band there and the lead guitarist was from like Iceland or something or some Norwegian country and his literal name was Dragon. And I was like, that is the coolest name I've ever heard. <clears throat> and I came home and I said, he shall be called Dragon. And Hosanna said, Vito. <clears throat> so, uh, so our child is not named Dragon. Uh, but uh, I'm sure a lot of us put a lot of thought and energy and effort into naming our kids. Um, I know many in this church went straight to the very biblical. I mean, our son's name is Judah, but some of you, the whole line of your kids is very biblical. I've seen you guys registering your kids for kids' church out there. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to kids' church. You got some <laughs> biblical names. That's great. Um, but, uh, but Hosea names his children something a little more tragic. Remember, especially in the Bible, names have meaning. For many of us, we, we don't know the meaning of somebody else's name unless they were to tell us. Um, my name means from the hill. My kids increasingly tell me it means over the hill. But um, <laughs> names carry a lot of meaning. And so God tells Hosea, for this first son that is born to him, he's to name him Jezreel, which means judgment is coming or God scatters. And then a little later, they have a second child. It's a girl, a babbling baby girl. And God says, you're to name her not loved. And third, they had another boy. And God said, name him not my people. Wow. Um, and it's a reminder. Because every time you say their names, you're reminded of Israel's unfaithfulness. Imagine calling down for, di for dinner, you know, not loved, get down here. <laughs> not my people. And uh, it's a constant reminder of the faith, faithlessness, the, the, the wandering of God's people. And so um, this, this metaphor is being lived out in Hosea's life. What, a, what a, a, an ex example and a, and a difficult example that Hosea is having to live out. And so um, to continue the agony of Hosea's story in chapter 2, when you go to chapter 2, Hosea's wife then leaves him and returns to her previous life of prostitution. She decides that she's going to abandon her husband and abandon her children and return to her former life. 
In Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, second half of verse 5, it says, and she, and she said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. So chapter 2 opens with God writing this story like an aggrieved husband at a court filing charges for divorce. He's listing out the grievances that this uh, woman has had towards him. He says, my wife has gone back to the men that she, she had before, that she was with before. And in verse 8, verse eight, it says she doesn't even realize who was giving her everything she has. She's going after all these things, these men that are going to give her things. But in verse 8, it says she would go out and sin each night and come home and find grain and wine and olive oil and silver and gold, not realizing these were all gifts from Hosea. And then she would take them and take them to Baal, the idols that are there, and offer them to Baal to worship him. See, here's a really important thing we need to understand. When the two nations were split, there was a king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was the king of, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when the nation split, sometimes we think, oh, they're kind of like the states. You got Washington and Oregon. No, they were not part of the same united situation. They hated each other. There's a reason they split. And they would actually go to war against each other and try to destroy each other. So there was, no, there was anonymity between the two. They did not like each other. And so the temple was located in Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem? In the southern kingdom in Judah. The people up in Israel could not go there easily. And so Jeroboam decided to keep people from possibly going down there and becoming part of the lower kingdom. I'm going to build my own temples, two of them. And he built two temples up in Israel for people to worship at. And he's like, well, we don't exactly have the presence of God and all the cool things they have there. So I'll build a couple golden idols. That'll make it so people, he's got these gold calves that he put it, puts in there. People can worship God at these gold calves. And they became places of idol worship in Israel. And so there's this idol worship going on. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping these other gods. And so Hosea's prostitute wife would take these things that he gave her as gifts, trying to win her back, that were from the gift giver, and say, these are from the gods, these are from Baal. And she would take them and sacrifice them to false gods. And so on top of all this, she goes out each night sinning and then coming home for, get, for gifts that were given to her and then go and give them away to another god. And, and all of this is happening. And so... Um, Hosea does something he, in verse 2 it says he builds up thorns on the path as a, as a symbol of God trying to keep Israel from running away into the night he would build up thorns along the pathway and, and, and all of this is the symbolic relationship God has with Israel and the covenant God made with Israel in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 now has been broken over and over again not just for like a couple years they kind of fell away but for like a thousand years they had turned from God. A thousand years they had broken this relationship. And, and, and a marriage relationship, this is called a breach of the vows. And just as Gomer has done, Israel has broken this covenant over and over with God. And so it's in line with this meaning of the names that Hosea gave his children. God says this in Hosea chapter 2 verse 2. It says this, But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. So at some point, any man or any woman would finally say, you know what? Enough is enough. Enough is enough. You are no longer going to be my husband or wife. You continue to do this. You continue to breach the trust. You continue to breach the, the promises we've made each other. It's over. And Hosea was instructed to name his children. Israel has, um, has placed itself in a position of not being loved by God. And God says, you are not my people anymore. 
You are not my people anymore. Now, did God say, you know what? I'm just, I'm just tired of you guys. I'm, I'm over it. Did God say, uh, you know what? We've had a good run, but things are just over. No, it was a decision that Israel made. And, and so people ask, why does God send people to hell? Let me tell you, God is in the business of keeping people out of hell. God is in the people of rescuing people from hell. We have chosen our own way. Like Gomer, our hearts wander. Our hearts are not faithful. And this is what Israel has done. They continue to breach and walk away from God. And so God is doing everything he can to rescue the people back. But we have all chosen our own way like Gomer. We wander. We're not faithful. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. It says, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Now, Hosea is not saying... It's because of a lack of education about God. They're, 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 it's not because they don't know enough about God. He said they are in a spiritually lost state. They are participating in empty religious gestures. Their religion itself actually became a source of sin. Have you ever thought that religion could become a source of sin in and of itself? Hosea 8.11 Israel has built many altars to take away sin, but these very altars became places for sinning. Even though I gave them all my laws, they act as if those laws don't apply to them. You see, when religion becomes about the liturgy, no, there's nothing wrong with liturgy. Liturgy is a good rhythm of life as we follow God. But when it becomes just about the religion or the, or the, the, the motions and the things that we go through or the emotion that we seek, we seek that emotional fulfillment that comes in it, or maybe having our intellects tickled by, by a nice a big theological thought, or, or um, maybe just something to, an opportunity to dull our consciences. Maybe we use religion to dull our conscience. When we feel the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, when we're feeling uh, you know, like the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we use religion to dull that conscience, there, there, therein lies the lack of knowledge, because we don't truly know God, but we are seeking things to fill that void. And our religiosity can even become a place of sin. It can become sanctimonious pride. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. See, even though we have... So many writings of Paul. Think about all the different books that Paul wrote. The most important teaching for him was to have a personal experience to know Jesus. He talked over and over about the personal encounter he had with Christ when he was on that road. It's about personal encounters with Jesus. And so more than just knowing the facts about him or having an intellectual cognizance of who Jesus is, it's about knowing him. You see, you can do all the right things and have a broken relationship. I've known many people that I thought their marriage was just singing along. And then one day you find out it is broken. And only at the end do you find out. You can go through the right motions. You can put out the right, you can have the right forward-facing situation. You can make the food they like. You can do all the things. But unless there's relationship that's actually being fostered and time together and care for one another, it's broken. To know one another. And so um, God sees his people. He says, you're going through the motions and it's empty words. And it's my desire that you know me. Look at what he says in verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. 
People are doing exactly what the Old Testament told them to do, probably. They're probably sacrificing the right number of bulls at the certain day and taking the certain number of steps they're supposed to take on certain holidays and all the things, the hand washing and all these things. He says, it's useless because you don't know me. He says, I want to show you love there in verse 6. I want to show you love. Now, the Greek translation of show you love is actually show you mercy. Show you mercy. You see, mercy is something that's given or received when punishment is about to be inflicted, right? If you're begging for mercy, it's when something is about to come down on your head that you deserve. And so God is saying, I want to show you mercy. It's because of this lack of knowledge of God, he says, that my people are being destroyed and I want to extend to you mercy. And so then on top of it, we've got Hosea who is called to to marry this woman who's promiscuous. He marries her. They have children. He has to name bizarre, horrible names. And then... On top of it, she leaves him and she's giving credit to other people for the gifts she has. She's sacrificing it to idols. She's left him. She's sinning against him. And then this is what God says to do in Hosea chapter 3. He tells Hosea, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. He tells Hosea, you need to go find your wife and love her. That means she's probably out and about at that moment. She's not in the house. She's not with him. Sometimes we get this view of God that Old Testament God is the vengeful, violent, angry God that's always smiting people. And then Jesus comes along. He's like, let's mellow out a little bit. Let's just be nice. (laughs) But let me tell you, judgment would, yes, ultimately be coming to Israel in Hosea's lifetime. It was coming. Assyria would come and destroy Israel. God was deeply hurt by their spiritual adultery. And he decreed that his people would go into exile. But look what God says in the very next verse after he says that. He says, but how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? All of my compassion is aroused. So he's in this conflict, right? Of justice. Of righteousness that God has held to. But also his compassion and his love and he's and he's in this conflict of emotions i'm sure and so over a thousand years of of idolatry and, and, and adultery turning from god god is still chasing his people god is still pursuing them with his love so it's not just a vengeful god that's waiting for the moment that they turn from him to smite him for a thousand years he's waited on them to turn back to him He sent prophets. He sent people to speak on his behalf he's doing everything he can to draw his people back to him And so he sends Hosea out, and Hosea finds her in chapter 3, verse 2, and it says, And so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. So Hosea doesn't just come find her and say, come home with me. He has to buy her out of prostitution. She probably has some sort of a pimp or something that he has to purchase her from, or perhaps there's a very high chance that she was involved with temple prostitution and buy her out of the temple. And so he comes and purchases her, and the Hebrew word here for for love is hesed. And this word hesed is the conventional love with steadfast commitment that he had. A steadfast commitment. I am committed to you. I am completely committed to you. Love without commitment is passion without action. Love without commitment is having passion without action. I can be really passionate about a lot of things, but until I take action, it's useless. 
And love with commitment is what Hosea demonstrated then. I love you and I will come for you. I will even pay for you though you walked away from me. And under the law of that day, Hosea had every right to even have Gomer stoned for what she did to him. To have her executed. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is actually the beautiful part of this chapter, this book. And let me tell you, this was a heavy book, isn't it? Like, oh, Pastor Brent, come on, give us a chance to breathe here. This is actually a beautiful moment in this book where Hosea echoes God's heart. Remember what Hosea had named his children. Remember, judgment is coming, not loved, not my people. But look what Hosea 2.23 says. God says, I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. I will say, now you are my people, and they will reply, you are our God. See, God says to those who are not loved, I'm going to show you my love. And he says, I'm going to show mercy where there is no mercy. This is God's tearful plea to return to him. And it's the message of Hosea. We, all of us, I'm not talking to people who are the big sinners in here. Guess what? We all are the big sinners in here. We all rebel. We all rebel, but God restores. That's the story of Hosea. We all rebel. Listen to his language in chapter 14. Chapter 14 goes on to say, God says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Verse 4, the Lord says, then I will heal you of your unfaithfulness or, or of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds for my anger will be gone forever. Amen. You see, God is using Hosea's story here to show the impossible, the ridiculous mercy that he has for us. Hosea brought her back and he bought her back at a price. And people must have thought Hosea was an absolute fool. Can you imagine a real life situation like this? They must have thought, what, what are you thinking? You, you are a sad, simpering little man to go begging your wife to come back and not only that, pay for her to come back. Have some personal pride, man. But his compassion was too great. His obedience to God was too great. He said, I... God says, I love you so much, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. There's no distance too far you could go to run from God. You may say, I'm too far gone. God may love some people. They may have had a little bit of problems. they, They may have made some bad choices, but you don't know my story. God does. I don't know your story, but God does. And there's no distance too far that you can run from him. He won't come after you with his love, his overwhelming love. There's no amount of restoration he doesn't want to bring you. Um, he, he is ready to rush in. And, and, and if you still have breath in your lungs, let me tell you, God is still fighting for you. Right up into that last moment that Israel was about to go into captivity, God was fighting for their hearts. And if you're here and you're breathing, God is fighting to, to save you, to know you, to make your, himself known to you in a real way. Hosea 2.14, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. That's what Hosea says about his wife. Sometimes it takes the wilderness to hear God best. 
The wilderness is the place of challenge. The wilderness is the place of isolation. And sometimes we need the distractions to be gone. We need the pain to be there to look up to God. We need to hit the bottom before we look up. and See, we need Him. We recognize our dependency. It requires a humbling of ourselves and a recognition of our sins. Some of us are so prideful, myself included, with our own self-righteousness, our do-goodedness, that we don't recognize how depraved and broken we are without a Savior. And when we reach the bottom and we say, I can only look up. It's the only place I have to look. God is waiting there. And Hosea calls himself a watchman in chapter 9. He says, I'm a watchman. Now, a watchman's job is to stand on the wall and to blast a trumpet with the sound of alarm. When there's trouble coming, their job is to blast the alarm. That's got to be really unpleasant in the middle of the night. I uh, uh, remember college days, uh, living in the dorms. I don't know why they thought it was funny to do the fire alarm pull at 2 a.m., especially finals week. Who thinks that's funny? I don't get it. No one likes an alarm in the middle of the night, but the watchman's job is to blow the alarm. We would like to hear the lullaby. We would like to hear the things that tickles our ears and makes us feel good. Give me the warm fuzzy. This has been a tough message today, but let me tell you something. The watchman's job is to sound the alarm, and they're responsible if they don't sound it. If destruction comes, they're responsible for not sounding the alarm. That's what God told Ezekiel. And so uh, it's a responsibility of the watchman to sound the alarm. And, 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 and he says, you need to return to the Lord and save yourself from the destruction of his justice. Because while God is compassionate, he's also just. We talked about how he holds both of those things. And justice is real. And he, he brings his justice. And so we would love to hear the lullaby. But it, the truth is, his justice is coming. And how many of us... Have ever had a toddler or been around a toddler and heard this phrase, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. Uh, We have the daycare here. I hear that a lot. I can do it myself. Um, We like to think that we can take care of things ourselves. We like to think that uh, we have the ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and be a good enough person. But let me tell you, We can't do it ourselves. Hosea 13.5, it says, I took care of you. God says this, and I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land. But when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. We did this ourselves. Let me tell you, sometimes we think that we're capable of just being that person ourselves. But God says, you need me. You see, our pride keeps us from remembering the source of our life. Our personal righteousness and goodness is not good enough to save us. There's a Roman poet by the name of Horace who had his academy of poets around and he said this to them. He said, never bring a God upon the stage unless your problem is such it demands a God to resolve it. And this problem that we're talking about, God's justice and his mercy is a problem that demands a God resolve it. We can't do it ourselves. Humanly speaking, there's no way out for us. You see, if God is to be both just and loving... It demands that God has to be the solution. How can he do that? By stepping onto the human stage himself. And out of love, taking on humanity and taking the full blow of his own justice instead of us. If God's justice must be seen through, the only way it can be seen through is either fully on us and us being dead for eternity... 
or Jesus coming in our place, taking the full brunt of God's wrath that is to be focused on sin and brokenness and everything that is imperfect, taking that upon himself and then himself being able to extend to us his mercy that he wants to give us. And that is what this is all about. At the cross, we find that God can be merciful and just, and neither one is compromised. God cannot compromise those things. And so at the cross, neither one is compromised. Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved for betraying him on our behalf. And that all that remains then is his love towards us. But the thing is, like Gomer, we all struggle to let go of our sin. We all go back, running back to our sin, don't we? We all go running back to our sin. We find ourselves continually turning back to sin. And today, Jesus wants to set you free. We don't have the willpower to just stop sinning. Well, it's Monday morning. Guess I'm done sinning. I'd love that. I don't even have the willpower to stay on a good diet for very long. But through his mercy and his grace, we can live completely set free and in his favor and in his love. So this morning, I want us to take a moment and bow our heads and close our eyes. We seek fulfillment in so many places. I think Gomer had a wandering heart. She was looking for fulfillment in so many places and we, we have fickle hearts. But this morning, God is saying, I'm here to redeem you back. You may have been running, but nothing can hold back my love. Come home today. This morning, I believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. This was a hard message today. This was a heavy message today. But it needed to be spoken. It's The reality is, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've chosen our own way. We've walked away from God. We have severed that, that connection we are to have with God. And only through Jesus can we have salvation. He came. He took the brunt of God's justice that was coming down for us. He died for us. And by saying, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I invite you to come. Wash me clean of my sin, my rebellion, my failure. I want to serve you. We have new life in him. That relationship is restored completely. And it's not not like we're suddenly branded with a scarlet letter that the rest of our life we walk through and God says, well, yeah, but you were kind of a jerk. He sees you as righteous as Christ. We have his righteousness wrapped around us. He, we are fully his children when we come in and accept him as our Lord and Savior. So right now, with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you say, Pastor Brent, I have wandered. I need that forgiveness. I, I've, I've searched for it in so many places. Maybe you have been self-destructive in very real ways. You have been self-destructive with drugs and alcohol and promiscuity in different areas of your life. And you have found yourself more and more broken as you look for that way to fulfill. And right now you say, I need you, Jesus. I need you to make me whole. I need you to restore me. I need you to bring me back. Buy me back. I can't get myself out of this. Only you can. Right now, Jesus, we invite you into this place. Holy Spirit, speak to hearts. So right now, church, if you are in this room, you say, Pastor Brent, I'm there. I'm in this room and I am a person. It says, I need Jesus to forgive me of that sin, of that rebellion. I need him because he took the weight of that 
justice God has for me upon himself, I receive it and I want to follow him and make him my savior from this day forward. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Will you raise it high? Thank you. Yes, I see those hands. Thank you. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, I see those hands. Thank you. And that hand, thank you. And that hand, thank you. Across this room. You can put your hands down right now. Let me tell you. No one is without sin, not even one. Every one of us come to the throne room of grace on the same level of needing His forgiveness. And like I said, I don't know your story, but He already does. And He already says, come home now. So right now, I want to lead us in a prayer. And this prayer isn't a magic prayer with like the words you say it in the right order or anything like that. It's this prayer that speaks out the posture of our heart. See, the Bible says in the book of Romans that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so there's some stipulations there. First of all, it's confession. It's speaking out. God, I'm a sinner. I am broken. I need Your forgiveness. And then there comes to a point of belief. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came, He lived a perfect life, He died for me, and He's alive today and He offers me life. And I believe that. And you receive Him into your heart. Salvation is yours. So right now, with everyone who raised their hand in this room, and everyone else who has made that decision to follow Jesus, we're going to pray this prayer out loud. Pray this prayer out loud. I want you to pray it with conviction with all of your heart today together. So let's say this together. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you came for me to buy me back while I was lost, while I was broken, while I was dying. In my sin, you found me and you died for me in my place. You took God's wrath so that I could have life. And I believe that you're alive today and you offer me your life, eternal life, full life in your name, Jesus. I receive it. I make you my Lord and I make you my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. There are many in this room that raised their hand this morning and said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And let me tell you, He has welcomed you back in open arms. He's welcomed you back, not with stipulations. Well, if you do A, B, C, and D now, maybe we'll talk about it. You are a full and complete, legitimate child of God. And heaven celebrates with you. Heaven celebrates with you. Now, let me tell you that asking Jesus into your life isn't the end point, though. It's the beginning point. This is an important thing that I want to mention here. That when we say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, it's not like, well, that's done, and we move on. Now it's relationship. Remember we talked about God says, for lack of knowledge, the people perish. We need to know God. We need to know who He is and to grow in that relationship with Him. In the same way, when I married my wife, we walked down the aisle, we said the I do's. It wasn't like, well, that's taken care of. Marriage, off the checklist, and move on with my life. We then begin a new life together. As you have now said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, there's commitment we make to Him, and we say we're going to walk together with you, Jesus, and we want to help you, and with what that relationship actually looks like. What's that mean for me as I live out my life for Christ? And so, here's what we, I ask you to do. 
We're going to do our connection cards right now, church. So if everyone will get out your phones, we do the digital ones or we got the paper ones in the seat backs. We would love everyone to fill one out. Whether you fill, you've filled a thousand out, fill out a thousand and one today, okay? Or maybe this is your first one. Fill out that connection card. Let us know if it's your first time. But also, if you've made the decision to follow Jesus today, mark that on your connection card. I've decided to follow Jesus today. Because we want to follow up with you on what that looks like. Help you with the next steps. Get, get you um, into a, a small group and things like that. Help you along the way. Because now the journey begins. And it's a journey of joy. Yes, there will be troubles and things that we face in life. But Jesus is with you. And we as a church together are the body of Christ. And we walk together with you. So mark on your connection card that you have decided to follow Jesus with us. If there's anything we can be praying with you about in that comment section, will you mark that in the comment section? What we can be praying about. Maybe God's been answering prayers. We got to celebrate several praise reports this last week. God has been doing amazing things. Mark that in your connection card, if you will. Um, And uh, uh, just connect with us there. We want to pray over those things together with you. So right now, church, as we finish filling that out, I want to pray over you. Pray over this church as we get ready to go. Our ushers are going to have the buckets at the back of the room. If you did a paper one, you can just drop it in that bucket on the way out. God is good. God is so good. All the time, God is good. And uh, while this was a challenging message today, I find it nothing but encouraging to see the lengths that God will go through to pursue us with His love. And for some of us, this is uh, something to receive in, in, in reflecting that same love that God has for us into the relationships we have. For some of us, there's forgiveness that we need to extend that we, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and, and, and that, that forgiveness and that love for one another that we need to show one another. It, it's a challenging book to read, and I encourage you, it's only, uh, I think, 14 chapters long. Read it. Um, read it this week and, and see what God says through it. Like I said, it is challenging. There, there's heaviness to it. Go read a good psalm afterwards. But, uh, but read through it. See what God says through this book as he pursues Israel with his love in the same way he pursues us. Lord, today, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is living and active. It wasn't just some dead words written 2,000 years ago, but today it speaks life to us. That today people have found eternal life in you because of what you inspired Hosea to speak and write and live then. We thank you that you restore and you renew and you bring back and you ransomed us back to you, Jesus, and that we live in the light of your love that is renewed each and every day, just as Hosea said, like the dew each morning, your love is renewed. And we celebrate that today. We dance in your love and we, we thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us. And together we say, amen. Amen. New Life Church, have a blessed week. We will see you next Sunday. and. Uh,